0: I would never take the line that language is trivial or a distraction from more important issues. There probably are more important issues, but political struggle invariably takes place on many fronts at once. No feminist fairy with a magic wand ever comes up and says, okay, you can have non-sexist language or equal pay. Now which is it to be? So we must evolve our language, even as we continue to embrace the void.
1: Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death?
0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where it is totally fine to say this show is controlled by Jews. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Helen Lewis, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the book Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights, which I found valuable and enjoyable to read. Helen has been both criticized and praised for her views on gender identity and trans rights. We first got in touch via our mutuals, the Guru Pod Boys, and Helen has a series coming out for BBC on gurus that'll be out on the 19th of December. So Guru Pod listeners, check that out. We got in touch Shortly after, I posted a fairly scathing response to her Atlantic piece calling Wokeness a new religion. And despite my coming in pretty hot on that one, we've been chatting for a while and I found it valuable. So I'm hoping we can bring some of that energy into this space. So Helen, would you like to say hi to the Voids?
1: Hello, it's very nice to be here. Yeah, I did think at the time, like, is this how Aaron gets people in his podcast? He just remorselessly slags them off. Like, <laughs> is this some sort of pickup artist? Technique? Were you negging me? Is that what was that what happened? Here? Right?
0: No, I'm, I'm vehemently opposed to negging. It was, you know, I, I I will get to the article. And I certainly I think I stand by the criticism, though I certainly uh, was a little excessively donkey <laughs> in the language. <laughs> You know, we all and, and, and as I'll talk about when we get to it, like part of that was I feel like I've read so many versions of that argument and was bringing a lot of frustration with me to that conversation ahead of time but no like I said you've been really great about sort of discussing issues I think you and I agree on quite a few things and maybe disagree significantly on some things which is what I find valuable and I always like having people in my epistemic community who will give me various sorts of pushback so to get things started in this kind of you know vein It's not unusual when I prep these interviews, people's reputations to be slightly different from how they self-identify. In your case, that split has been a little starker than usual. So I would love for us to just first, like, can you tell us a bit about how you self-identify politically? And if you could sort of code switch that a bit for Americans as best you can.
1: Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because uh, I would say I'm on the center left, normie social Democrat. You know, I believe in progressive taxation, that the rich should pay a higher share of tax than lower uh, paid people, that you should have a very strong social security welfare net. I think we send too many people to prison. What else do I think? I am broadly in favor of all social justice movements towards equality.
0: Equality um, or equity? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I actually, I think I, having made one of the Guru's episodes about diversity consultants, I'm, I'm really, I think there's a really interesting tension there and I'm not fully on board with equity, partly because mm-hmm. I think it causes such a big backlash. So there was a really interesting dialogue between, it was tony Coates and I can't remember who else, but about the fact that instead of reparations, should you have welfare policies in America that are universal Mm -hmm. but progressive and what will inevitably happen is that that will help more black Americans than white Americans but but is that a better way to do things without triggering the backlash that you get from things that are explicitly framed as affirmative action quotas reparations whatever it might be Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. persuaded by that in in policy terms but yeah so I'm not against equity in principle in terms of leveling Mm -hmm. historical wrongs um but i think that you have to be really careful about how you frame it because it can often end up doing more harm than good
0: okay so that that basically makes sense and then so like that's on the kind of economic side socially would you describe yourself as fairly progressive you said you were sort of on board with most of the social justice movements what does that look like to you in terms of policies generally
1: so I think that minority Americans, particularly, have faced historic discriminations. You know, the U.S. is standing in the ruins of slavery and Jim Crow, which have had intergenerational effects on on Black Americans in particular. You know, I think overall, I'm against colonialism. There's a spicy opinion for you. I think it was on balance, bold, bold take. a bad, a bad thing that brought a lot of misery to to places like the Congo or India or wherever it may have been, that enriched white, rich countries.
0: But also progress, I've heard from some people. But
1: but trains, so, you know... Sure,
0: yeah. Who can say?
1: Yeah, let's leave that one up in the air. And then obviously, as you say, um, I've written a book on feminism, so I have been a very strong advocate of women's rights throughout my career. On trans rights, you know, I believe that people have the right to live in the gender that suits them most comfortably and that there should be a legal and formal recognition process for doing that um i call people by their preferred pronouns i don't have a problem with that i make an exception i would say in the cases of rapists i find that very difficult because that is a crime of male sexual violence and i don't want to obfuscate that so that's one way which i would be very i would probably just use someone's name every single time to be honest with you rather than giving them a pronoun but um mm-hmm. i'm broadly on board, really.
0: Yeah. And that last one, you know, there was a a recent conflict about this, even within the sort of LGBTQ community after the shooting where the individual was claiming they were self-identifying as non-binary. I think there are sort of complicated questions about even if you're sort of strongly in favor of respecting gender identity, are there situations where you would make a case that like someone is claiming this in under false pretenses or for, you know, problematic ends or something like that so yeah we'll talk about the 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 trans stuff in a sec but yeah let's start with your book which i think would be you know a useful way to kind of unpack i think some ways in which we probably agree on some things so what would you say is the like thesis statement of difficult women
1: Well, the thing I wanted to look at was really how social change happens and what are the Mm -hmm. conditions under which it happens and do we over-attribute to individuals? You know, what are the things that change systems? And one of the things that I kept coming back to is the fact that often revolutionaries are, whatever you want to call it, bad people, difficult people. So Mm -hmm. to give an example of the suffragette movement in the UK... The Women's Social and Political Union, which was the militant organisation, they're the ones who did violent direct actions, you know, which eventually escalated to, to a bombing campaign just before the First World War broke out. That was headed up by the Pankhursts, who were dictatorial, they were monomaniacal, they encouraged cults of personality around them. Um, mm-hmm. All these things that I'm you know, objectively against and I think are bad things, but those were also very useful in uh, rallying women to the cause. and And they probably had a level of success that the suffragists, who were the non-violent, um, you know, law and policy-making women, weren't having on their own. And there's an interesting dynamic there because actually there had been decades and decades of this crunchy policy work and collecting signatures and making these arguments. And the thing that it just needed was the kind of rocket up it, which was the suffragettes and violence and militancy. And suddenly all these people who had, you know, not, never really had to have an opinion on this subject were forced to kind of pick a side. So you see that throughout. The book you know these these people who become leaders of the feminist movement are often monomaniacal or egotistical or um you know they run their organizations in very hierarchical ways and i really mm-hmm. i was really interested in that because that's all the things that we're told that women aren't naturally and shouldn't be you know women should be kind women should be empathetic women should be mopping everyone's brows and wiping everyone's ass and these women really weren't doing that they were demanding stuff which is quite transgressive
0: right so it seems like there's sort of two claims there and this kind of book could be written to make either one or both of them right so this could just be like uh here's a list of 11 really you know bitchy women and like here's here's their part in the movement with no further claims that you were sort of leaning to there about like and this revolutionary violence was actually essential for making social progress so you feel like you're making both claims not just that like Hey, isn't it weird and kind of interesting that, like, these really terrible people are crucial to, you know, like, are part of the social progress movement versus also their bombing techniques are really essential for social progress in this context or were were contributed to it in a valuable way?
1: I'm really interested in the role of um, violence in revolutionary movements. You know, the fact that Nelson Mandela is now kind of canonized as the guy who spent all that time in robin island and not Mm -hmm. so much um remembered that the ravonia trial which was what put him in there originally was a was a terrorism trial and that is a bombings of of supply
0: lines i think right
1: right and that is that is a kind of remarkable because he was right you know, he was right that apartheid South Africa was a, was a hideous state to be. That kind of got dropped away. And the same thing happened to the suffragettes, that because they were deemed to have been right by history, their air, their violence was airbrushed ever since out the 1920s with the Suffragette Fellowship. So I kind of wanted to confront people with the fact that, you know, we have all these sort of, you know, nine-year-old girls dressing up as suffragettes. Well, you're dressing up as terrorists. Um, hmm. and, and I think it's something to kind of bear in mind. And I, I think in both those cases... There's, it's very different to anything that's happening today in developed countries, right? Because neither of those groups, neither Black South Africans nor women, at the beginning of the 20th century in England, had full civil legal rights. So they were a huge number of democratic avenues for protest that were simply closed off to them. So that's why I'm not in favour of violence now. Like I was, I got into some Twitter trouble, and do you remember the great "Should you punch a Nazi?" era of uh, oh, Twitter discourse? Sure. As someone who went to school with Richard
0: Spencer, I was keenly uh, aware of the conversation.
1: Right. Where did you land on on Nazi punching, pro or anti?
0: Yeah, this was a long, long conversation. And I think I ultimately came down on, um, I mean, so like I have very weird views about moral responsibility that make it such that like, I don't think anyone deserves to suffer, including Richard Spencer. And so like, I don't think it's worth hitting him because he deserves it. Like,
1: would you, what if he stepped on a Lego? Would you be okay with that?
0: Oh, no one deserves to suffer is what I'm saying. Like, if you suffer by accident, that's unfortunate. But like, I'm saying like you shouldn't cause people to suffer if you can avoid it in any way. Okay. Um, and I also think that so like, so you
1: wouldn't curse Richard Spencer so he stepped on a Lego. No. Okay, that's good. No. You're a very good. You're what a moral person you are, Aaron. Oh, oh yeah, the
0: subtitle of my talks about this is not even Hitler. It's a, <laughs> it's a. We've had, I've had this conversation a couple times. Uh, but yeah, no, I think. I I came down mostly on no because I didn't think that in this particular context, it had the desired results that would justify causing harm and that harm, causing harm is prima facie bad, even towards Nazis.
1: Oh, interesting. If you could show me that
0: like punching them really actually helped in a big way, then maybe we could have a, a consequentialist conversation, but like it's, you know, and it's hard to assess these kinds of things to some extent because there are lots of, unknowable unintended consequences that can come you know like maybe richard spencer decides to stop being a nazi because you punched him but like five other people decide to start being nazis because they watch the video like how do you assess those consequences these are complicated questions i think um so I but yeah th- that's from a good the other side right which is that actually
1: mm-hmm. it is debasing to you to commit violence against other people like that's the thing you're you're oh. if you take that level of responsibility onto yourself that is degrading oh, sure. to your yeah. soul
0: yeah, I'm a, I'm a pluralist. I have a lot of different reasons for not doing things. So, like, I also do think that, like, causing harm to others causes harm to oneself in various ways. So, yeah, I, I'm fine with that, too. But I understand your clarification about... And, and like, it's tricky because we could say, well, look, yes, technically... You know, black people in America do have the right to vote in a way they didn't before, but they also are being systematically denied that through a variety of mechanisms that the Republicans are using to maintain minority rule. And so you have this hard question of like, what amount of undemocratic behavior crosses a line to a point where it's now okay to use these kind of revolutionary um, means? Um, But yeah, no, I like the book because, if nothing else, I think it disabuses people of the notion that the previous generation of the civil rights was peaceful, I guess, or like more kind of universally pacifistic. And I think this is important because, you know, this is something I want to ask you about, you know, down the line a little bit, but I I can ask it now. Do you feel like, you know, when we talk about woke, quote unquote, the kind of modern era of social justice... That there's a, a real substantive difference between that uh, sort of phase of the social justice movement and the previous civil rights era phase? Or do you think that they are kind of one is evolving out of the other and dealing with different situations, but is still sort of fundamentally using the same principles and approaches?
1: That's a really interesting question. And I do think one of the things that I think is a problem with whatever we want to call this kind of social justice politics is that it often isn't aiming to persuade a broad majority. It is often a project of elite capture. And that means it is often has incredible success. You know, if everyone in publishing, everyone in liberal journalism, everyone in academia, you know, like is of a particular set of p- political persuasions, then you can achieve an enormous amount of m- political movement in that direction very quickly. But you can't, you know, you haven't got that bedrock of sport. What the suffragettes did was they went out and they went around the towns of England and they made the case and people threw cabbages at them. And what they ended up doing was ending up with votes for women, which was something that had majority support. So when it was passed, it was passed with remarkably little backlash. And I think that's the bit that I worry about with the modern social justice movement, that it counts its successes by the fact that people don't want to say things on Twitter or there are things which are now unsayable in academia. And it thinks that's the same as having one majority support. And I think that's really dangerous, actually, because you you create these bubbles where it looks like everything's brilliant. Everyone believes the same thing. And like this is what I find fascinating Mm -hmm. about um, the way that Americans view Britain. Um, and about the fact that you get sort of people who live in liberal New York who think that you know they kind of think that Britain's got much bigger problems with race for example than than America and you're kind of like I just is that just is that actually true or is that just you live in New York and everybody you know thinks the same thing um, and you've mm-hmm. forgotten the fact that there are people who live in Wyoming and Utah who think very different things.
0: Yeah and I, I'm sympathetic to folks like Femi's uh, elite capture concerns and and I try to and I'm actually working on someone with, with an anti-woke person about this but I've tried to sort of think about ways in which there can be categories of like moderate woke and anti-woke and then like the I don't love the word moderate because I I I would classify myself as like a moderate woke person compared to the other group I have in mind but I would be viewed as probably extreme in my views and policies by like you say the vast majority of people and I don't deny that but I do think there's a difference between like healthy wokeness, whatever you want to call it. And this kind of like toxic or unhealthy kind. You're lawful that e- woke.
1: That's what you are. You're not chaotic woke. You're lawful woke. Oh, I'm woke. pretty
0: chaotic sometimes. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, you get the idea. Um, soft, But you know hard, what I mean? One of the things weak. is that, that's interesting
1: uh, yeah. when you talk about feminism is the fact that actually, and I, I really feel this very strongly about politics, having followed, mm-hmm. like, for example, New Labour in the 1990s, that sometimes you achieve the best progressive goals by talking about them in conservative language. And that often upsets progressive activists because what they like is the rhetorical stuff that gets them juiced up. But if you're going sure. to try and get like in America, I think a massive cause would be federally mandated maternity leave. And actually the way you probably talk about that is you talk about how brilliant families are and how great it is. And like a child's first months, how important it is for them to have more time with their mother. And that's all very conservative faith, family and flag language. Right. But what you would get in the end is a very progressive policy that would help keep women in the workplace, reduce the gender pay gap, all of that stuff. But it's not going to be, some people are there because they want the kind of, they want to be part of the Black Panthers, right? They don't want to be part of a normie social democratic project.
0: Yeah. And I do think that um, this kind of code switching persuasion behavior, especially if you're doing it genuinely and not just to like convert people is an important part of the project. And I, I sometimes wonder if it's, a project that has just gotten harder in an age where you can't just talk to one audience at a time where like, if you want to talk to your in group and talk to the out group, both sides are going to hear every part of all of those conversations for the most part. And that, you know, it it can either make it harder to not seem disingenuous or, you know, you're going to get dinged for, you know, when you're code switching in ways that some people um, don't like. Uh, But I, you know, like I think, So a couple of things, first of all, I think it's worth noting the flip side of that elite capture argument is that like when you look at MLK and the civil rights movement, it was wildly unpopular when they passed the Equal Rights Amendment. Like you're still looking at like minority um, uh, support, substantial minority support for that stuff, substantial dislike of MLK while he's still alive. So in a sense, they were still trying to force the hands of elites in a way that would then filter down into culture to some extent um but i do agree with you that there is a problem when too many sort of you know extremely woke people get into a space and they convince themselves that there's no need for persuasion because everybody agrees with them um but part of the reason i bring up the woke stuff is because in reading through this book and maybe it was just because you highlighted the like realities of these projects more than i think the anti-woke often do um not to say that you're anti-woke but the book reads kind woke of woke skeptic. to me. skeptic. You
1: can say I'm woke yeah. skeptic. How about that? I
0: think woke skeptic is fine. Yeah. And, and what, you know, what I noticed in the book was you highlight a couple of things that are what I think of as like textbook features of the things that people complain about when it comes to quote unquote wokeness, which is identity centered, political organizing, aggressive and disruptive and sometimes even violent political agitation and specifically pushing for change to language as part of social progress. And I think a lot of folks criticize the woke for fixating too much on pronouns or stuff like that um but I, I it feels like some of the quotes that you pull out in your text are would be very sympathetic to those kinds of approaches to social change is that do you think that's sort of a fair analysis
1: yeah that, i mean it's completely fair you know there are people who think my brand of feminism is you know unbearable Really, you know, woke, and actually, women would be a lot happy You know, there's a lot of discourse about, you know, maybe is the pill making women pick the wrong guys, or you know, if uh, actually, you know, like Jordan Peterson thinks, basically, if you're childless and you're a woman, you're sort of destined to this crabbed half life. So, um, you know, there are people who still believe that all the positions that I hold are are extreme left wing positions. So, yeah, I, I think that's true. The thing I think is interesting about language. Um, and I do criticize the way that language is used in social justice politics a lot, is what there needs to be is an acknowledgement that language is always political. And the best writer, I think, on this is um mm. Deborah Cameron, who's a professor at Oxford University of Linguistics. And she talks about this. You know, you are choosing language with particular political aims. You are not, there is no such thing as neutral language. And some of the things that annoy me about Uh, You know, pregnant person, for example, is the pretense that that is just a purely neutral term. Well, it's not. It's about trying to remove, you know, it's trying to shift the gender um, bias and try and say this isn't a purely female centred experience. Now, you can agree with that or disagree with that. But like, that's what the. it's not just merely being inclusive. It's trying to make a specific political argument about who gets pregnant. And that's what annoys me is the Mm -hmm. denial of a political project while enacting a political project.
0: I'm sympathetic to that, actually. And it's, I think, something that the, cri- the woke insofar as they are, you know, doing critical theory analysis should be more keenly aware of in their own behavior, given that that's largely their critique of liberalism, which is that it smuggles in liberal principles while pretending to be value neutral. Um, and I think they're right. And I think that they also then do the same thing. And I think, you know, to some extent, I think we all do it a little bit, right? We all use language that loads the conversation in our direction. And it's, you have to practice not doing it. Um, And, but yeah, I do think that it would be better if more of us used um, more neutral language. And, And there's a conflict over this, a debate about like, does using more neutral language just seed ground to, you know, the moderates or the reactionaries? Do you get stuck on like a euphemism treadmill where they're just going to weaponize whatever term, you know, I I prefer to use luck instead of privilege. And I have people complain that like, oh, they're just going to weaponize luck when you, you know, if you ever have any success on that front. Um, so how do you like, how do you balance that? And how do you balance that with the stuff in difficult women where it's like, you know, maybe it's actually really good that like, trans individuals are you know uh, um, culturally engineering and conceptually re-engineering you know the concepts of gender and things like that and pulling everybody along with them uh, towards a very different perspective or something
1: well my worry about that is I'm not sure how much that's actually happening and I think some of it is incredibly conservative Um, and it's one of the reasons that I talk about it a bit you know there's the famous formulation which is like Um, you know the old sexist view is like women should do the washing up and then the feminist view is that everyone should do the washing up and then the kind of ultra gender ideology view is whoever does the washing up is a woman and that's the bit that I've always had a, an issue with it, right? If you redefine womanhood as femininity, then I think that's an incredibly regressive thing to do. And that's one of the things I've resisted. But you're right. As a journalist, this is something that preys on my mind all the time. Like I'm writing at the moment about Florida and the Don't Say Gay Bill, the Parental Rights and Education Bill. And that is an absolutely classic example of the fact that you are not, there is no neutral way to talk about that subject, right? Is it a homophobic bill or is it a parental rights bill? Well, it's both to people at the same time. Um, and, you know, and, and politicians now know this and have weaponized this so that if you put a press inquiry into the DeSantis team in Florida and you don't use the language that they approve of, they will start you know, tweeting out your statements and saying, well, this is proof of, of media bias. So you have to pick your way through these issues incredibly carefully. Everybody knows how potent um, a language is as a weapon, and you have to be constantly aware of it. And you have to make decisions that reveal your own biases and priors. You can't. I I just think the pursuit of neutral language is is kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. Like sex work being a really interesting example. So there are people who believe sex work is work and they want you to refer to sex workers. I know lots of radical feminists, including women who have previously been in prostitution, who want to say women exploited into prostitution. They say it wasn't a job. I was being raped for money. And my solution to that one is when someone is a self-described sex worker, I call them a sex worker. And when someone is a woman exploited into prostitution, I call a woman exploited into prostitution. And when I (laughs) try and talk about the phenomenon more generally i tend to talk about people who sell sex on the basis that's something that everybody agrees mm. is is going on and it doesn't have an ideological bent to it but you know you you are never going to be able to write these things in a way that makes everybody happy
0: right yeah i, I talk about this with my students about um female whether you want to call it female genital mutilation or female circumcision you know e- either of those terms neither of those terms is acceptably neutral in my opinion and there is no true neutral term for describing what's going on there because i think one of them is too euphemistic and the other uh some women don't like to be viewed as mutilated in this kind of way so um it's a really really the only person i know
1: who's been through that was very happy to use fgm um
0: right some some are very happy to others you know it's, it's similar to like the debate over like victim survivor the shift towards language about survivor um you know some women don't like to you know, like, be called mutilated, which I think I can understand, right? You know, I think that makes sense. Um, But, you know, let's talk about language, uh, because this I think brings us right along nicely to the second thing I want to talk about, which was the article you wrote about wokeness and religion, because I think there's a lot about the language of the use of the word religion that is particularly important. But let me just first ask you this, right? If Difficult Women is a feminist book, and maybe even a woke feminist book, does that make it religious apologetics? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, as you all know from the documentary, I'm actually not, I'm no longer the burning new atheist that I once was in my, in my youth. And, um, I have softened on, you know, I would, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, you know, religion's the opening of the masses. Well, life will be much better once we get beyond it. And now I'm kind of, you know, I guess maybe on the conservative journey that people often go on with age or I don't know, just weary that I'm a bit like, actually, it gives a lot of people a lot of meaning in their life so I don't if you want to call it that I think it's kind of it maybe silly yeah no I, I but I don't find it offensive right and that's the thing mm. I think the difference between you and me is I think when you hear wokeness as a religion that offends you in some way which is the bit that I, I when I wrote that piece I didn't kind of foresee in the way. So tell me a bit more about why because yeah. it's something that really seems to like actually you find it not just wrong, but sort of offensively
0: wrong. Well, and I want to clarify, I don't find it offensive. I mean I think it's a insofar as like I think it's a bad argument. And so I would find it as offensive as I would find any other bad argument, but I don't find it like personally an attack or anything. The first thing that I really struggle with, and I feel like there's a little bit of that in this article as well, which is I'm not really clear if you're saying that this is just A description where I'm saying that wokeness so so there's a couple of two main questions for me right are you claiming wokeness is literally a religion or is it replacing a religion or is it have some features that are like religions and then the second question for me is is this just an observation or is this a criticism because I think it reads as a criticism even if maybe you're saying now that you feel like you were just aiming for an observation
1: I think I would say that it has got features of a religion. And that's where I came to with this. This whole project started with me saying, you know, somebody asking me from a Christian think tank, have, you know, do you think your childhood Catholicism has been replaced by feminism and me kind of thinking about it and, and coming to conclusion, that was probably true. Like it, you know, and and then something that comes up a lot, like people talk about the blue church, don't they? They talk about politics in these, in these religious terms in the sense of kind of community. Um, And it is to some extent a criticism because I think in both cases there's obviously some big differences from religion and but like not all religions obviously have the idea of a creator god so you kind of got like you know when you actually kind of look at religions they've got a, a, like a large constellation of things that they do that with overlaps anyway so defining what a religion is is hard enough but i do think it has religion-like features um and they are more like uh, an abrahamic religion i would say than a uh, an eastern religion mm. but i would also say that um, it is a critique in the sense that I think that some of social justice politics, when it's bad, has superstitious elements to it. There are things that, to me, are like when we used to say the sign of the cross and genuflect when you came in the in the door. So, for example, I would put the category of putting pronouns in your email signature, which just seems to me to be t- tokenistic gesture politics of the level of doing the sign of the cross in, in the door, but which is seen as being, it's, again, it's that it's the presentation of this is something that is necessary to do so that everybody knows what gender you are, well, most people on Helen can really kind of guess. And actually it's not, when you're writing an email directly to somebody, you don't actually need to, you don't use, you use you, you know, you and I, are the pronouns you're using there anyway. It's not a third person thing, but it is about tribal affiliation and, and signaling and, and sort of doing something to kind of ward off the idea that anybody is not on board with a particular political project and again like i said you know and i said this when i spoke to the guys from um, decoding the gurus like i don't necessarily deprecate all of that sometimes tribal signaling and affiliation and saying these are the common values that we all share is really important um and i'm willing to hear that argument out i'm just not sure in, a, in lots of the cases where it comes up on in online discussions that argument has actually been made it has been asserted but i'm not sure it's been demonstrated
0: interesting so, I think I have a couple of concerns here. I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that there are criticisms of sort of the more extreme version of wokeness that are very similar to the criticisms that I would raise about extreme religiosity. They're they're religious-like in their you know, uh, behaviors or devotions or something um, like that. I think that's, to me, a very, very, very different claim than saying social justice has become a religion or that they've substituted one religion for another. Because, first of all, the vast majority of people aren't leaving religion. Most of them are still religious. They're just adding a social justice element to their religion. So you have, you know, a huge schism right now within the Southern Baptist Church between the woke and the anti-woke. And and all of them are deeply religious in the sense of, you know, being Christians. So I, I, I worry that there's this narrative that certain individuals, especially people like, you know, Peterson, like to push where they're like, oh, look, society has largely secularized, but it's devoid of value now because it's secularized. And so it's replacing its need for value with Woke religion or something like that, and it's really a religion, and that's and it's and it's but because it doesn't provide all of the actual truth that real religions do, it's it's fake and bad and harmful and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that analysis is problematic, even if it is true for some individuals psychologically. You know, they stop doing religion and they feel like they have less meaning or community in their lives, and they find that in a different movement i I guess I worry primarily about the simple equation of if someone's in a community that's value centered and is doing works you know based on those values as a community that that is religious in itself. I think we should separate those concepts out, and I feel like that's what's running together here.
1: Yeah, that's a really. Um, I think that's a really good challenge. There's a, a line about the Labour Party in Britain, which said it always owed more to Methodism than Marxism, which is kind yeah. of an interesting um, way of looking at it. And I think that's actually probably true. Where I would push back, I think, is that actually secularism is on the increase. Um, the 2021 census just came out in the UK, and it has record numbers of people reporting no religion. Only one percent of 18 to 24 year olds are members of the Church of England. And actually, the really funnily enough, this inspired a kind of great wailing and gnashing of teeth about how this was all down to immigration. The very funny right. thing being that particularly Black African immigrants to um, England are some of the most religious people. You know, I would the, assume the, as the, much. Yeah, <laughs> the mega churches of London are full of people who come here from Ghana kenya and you know and it's it's white britons mm. who are who are losing their religion so and i do think note, that
0: yeah go on oh i just think it's worth mentioning this is a this is a problem part of the problem with this discourse is that like we're start, we're, we're talking across the atlantic in two different countries and there are big divides in terms of like you know, Florida passed a law banning trans and like we have a very different religious situation than y'all do. But uh, go ahead and finish what you're saying about the UK. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's
1: but, but actually secularity is also in the uh, increase in America too in the sense of the number it's, it's of It's more complicated, but finish what you're saying. And then but like reporting to regular church going has declined st- sharply since the 90s.
0: Yeah. So my understanding of if you break into the cross tabs on that material is that you're seeing a decrease in moderately religious individuals attending church and a shift of those individuals towards more spiritual or something kinds of mindsets. But you're seeing an increase in religiosity and a hardlining in the more radical right-wing religious communities. So, you know, it may look, you know, in aggregate, like we are becoming slightly more secular, but I would argue that we are polarizing, you know, towards like a, a somewhat, you know, a much smaller atheist pole and a very, very large extreme evangelical poll on the right. And then a bunch of people in the middle who are kind of like, have become more squish on the topic essentially um which i think is you know a slightly different picture if that you know if that minority party is also the heavily religious party then you're not you know we're not necessarily we we just repealed roe v you know roe v wade we're not moving in a secular direction in the legal sense
1: no but again that's a really interesting and and everything comes down there to my mind to america's Immensely minoritarian institutions in the sense of the Supreme Court and For the sure. Senate, giving wildly dominant um, powers to very small voting blocks, which again is is very different. You, you're right. The Conservative Party here is not founded on there is no evangelical base. I mean, I mean, there are British evangelicals, but they are not. You know, the the Conservative Party's base is kind of now you know, people who drive Range Rovers in the shires and the countryside and, you know, Brexity voters in um, bits of Wales, the north of England. Um, those are the kind of, you know, it's it's just a very different voting block which then is reflected in the party. And we, when we've had, we now have a Hindu prime minister, which I just, I can't, like, when will be the first non-Christian mm-hmm. president of the United States. I think we might be waiting for quite a long time. Yeah, when
0: will we be the first atheist, openly atheist president? I, I don't think it's going to happen in our probably lifetimes. Probably literally.
1: Now. Well, I mean, yeah, openly. I mean, I think... Do we think that Donald Trump is deeply religious? I would probably no, assume... but I mean, like, ad-
0: openly runs on being atheist. Like, yeah. the the people I know who who uh, counsel atheists in America on running for office and are very pro-atheists running for office are like, you got to kind of soft-pedal your atheism. Like, you really do got to, like pick your battles on that one. And, and like, that's depressing. Like that's a really depressing reality. Like to say that you had to like, Oh, you got to downplay your religion. You know, those are, those are not the kind of things we want to hear for people who are trying to run for office because it then, you know, gives young Atheists the impression that you can't be yourself while running for office which is true
1: Um, (laughs) so good in a way that you're disabusing them and like letting into the realities of the world but that's interesting because I do think that takes us back to the comparison we're talking about why are those Mm -hmm. atheists having to hide it because there is a significant voting block in America that equates being Christian with being a good person and I think as if it is a quality that you have that you are a good person religious not just Christian
0: religious because the Muslims do better than us
1: (laughs) Well, there's a whole sort of the weird fetishization of well, they know how to keep control their women. Kind of that that use of Fair. Islam in, in the kind of Christian ima- evangelical imagination is kind of a subject for another time. But you know what I mean, and that's the bit I think I sometimes see in quote unquote woke people is the idea that it's a set of values that is a symptom of your refined sensibilities and your exquisite moral sense, absent doing anything else. And I think that really comes about the fact that you know my parents are. I don't know, they're in a squishy middle of of voting. I don't know really how they voted, but they, and they're Christians and they have devoted an enormous amount of their time to visiting the sick and housebound, going and giving people communion in old folks' homes, all of this kind of stuff. And I think that's the thing that sort of morally offends me is that I've, and I know you shouldn't argue with Twitter because we've seen what it does Hmm. to people's brains in a number of different ways, but it morally offends me that there are people who would think less of them because they're not extremely left-wing and would think that they're better Hmm. Purely by virtue of being left wing, then, and would, you know, it's the kind of good deeds, you know, acts versus words yeah. or whatever it is.
0: This is why I'm trying to luck pill my own community so that they'll stop being so judgmental. Because I, I agree with you that, like, it's similar. There's a study that I cite when I do that stuff where they found that if you do um, white privilege education. Poorly, essentially. You take liberal individuals who are usually compassionate towards poor people and you decrease their compassion towards poor white people, essentially. And they, what well, they find is that the, the justifications are the same as what conservatives would give for poor people in general, which is they deserve it. Right. They they had an advantage. They didn't take advantage of it. And so I do think there is. A a lot of the stuff that I don't like about wokeness that is like the elite, you know, the extreme kind of wokeness besides the elite capture, um, you know, superficiality stuff is a lot of a lot of it is punitive and retributive in its vibe. Like it really is about, you know, turning around and attacking the people who've been in power and punishing them and. I, you know, I am more sympathetic and and like, I think we have sources to draw on in our community, like Freire, who's going to say, look, you have to liberate the oppressors and the oppressed. And I do think we lose out on some of that sometimes because like you're saying, you know, to build up energy within the community, one easy way to do that is to demonize people and, and, you know, build up, build up attacks um, that way. So one final question I had on the article, and this is, You know, uh, a criticism I've had for a little while about this, which is, you know, these articles never seem to highlight that anti-wokeness seems to also meet the criteria of religion here. You have a paragraph specifically where you talk about, you know, on the right, you have QAnon and they're religious and stuff like that. But it seems like the fair criticism would be to highlight that McWhorter, who, you know, James Lindsay, people like this, you quote McWhorter in the article, that they are also meeting this criteria of being a community organized around a set of values doing you know activism in this kind of way um why do you feel like there aren't any articles about you know how anti-wokeness is a religion
1: oh that's a really interesting question um I mean, The Atlantic did publish an incredibly long and well-reported piece. I think it was maybe even a cover by Adrienne LaFrance, who is our executive editor about QAnon, in which she explicitly said like the uh, the lowest usual long-term outcome, like I would predict for QAnon, is that it will become a religion. It will become a sort of millenarian cult, essentially. So I think people are doing it in maybe individual cases. They're not making the broad uh, spectrum. I mean, I would be honest with you. My answer to that is that I would say there is an incredibly lively... Anti woke culture of writing, and there isn't actually mm-hmm. that lively a, a woke culture of writing. Like, and I think this is one of the problems that wokeness has. You know, if, if I were to give um, advice to people who were in that sphere, who genuinely like these are their politics and they want to advance them, is to have a look at the right and how incredibly successful it has been about making a kind of ecosystem, a self reinforcing ecosystem, or sometimes in ways that are really unhealthy. But that it has, you know, there's this kind of strange thing about the fact that people say know, that whatever you want to call it, social justice politics has no cultural power, blah, 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 which I don't think is true, right? If you operate mm-hmm. in any of the worlds that I'm describing, these upper professional middle-class worlds, you will understand that it, it does have enormous power over norms. But the thing is that it hasn't been very well articulated and theorized and, and argued, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's a shame because I think, you know, it was really interesting to read your points, and I'm, I think I agreed with a, quite a lot of them, that there is a kind of... Um, superstitious element to some anti-woke politics there is a kind of doctrinal belief like one of the things that has been really interesting to me making this guru series there's one episode that's about the intellectual dark web and it addresses the question of why is sam harris the only one of the intellectual dark web who didn't get more extreme Mm -hmm. who i would say still is really pretty much i would describe as heterodox in the original sense of the word heterodox and in lots of those other cases heterodox just turned out to mean conservative um and so Or or batch it insane yes as it turns out in some cases um but but that's to me is a really interesting question because actually how much space also is there for disagreement in that world so one of my interviewees is david fuller who ran a uh pop a youtube channel called Rebel Wisdom. And Mm -hmm. he left the mainstream media because he was really captivated by Jordan Peterson. He was captivated by this intellectual movement. And the story of the episode is the story of his disillusionment with that idea. And the fact that he discovered that, you know, when he criticized Jordan Peterson in a Substack post, there was a kind of instant, like you're cut off, you're dead to us. And so what started off as this project of like, let's all expand our intellectual horizons. Let's have a big chat about all of these taboo subjects curdled into a new type of orthodoxy incredibly quickly. So I thought that was a perfectly reasonable but like to your mind who are the great woke writers like who are the I can name you know any number of heterodox substackers. we all know who we're talking about when we talk about that group but who's articulating the case for your kind of politics really really well
0: yeah and that's that's a hard question I would say because I think there are so I don't think that it's under theorized in the sense I would say the opposite it's over theorized where where there's too much right woke writing for academics by academics and probably not enough public facing You know, um, you know, there's loads of queer theory in
1: academia, but there's not a lot of attempt to explain the tenets of queer theory to a normie audience in very basic language, yeah.
0: And I guess so, you know, if you take seriously, like I do, that critical theory is not genuinely separate from the Marxist stuff, then I'm going to point to folks like Olaf Emmy Otaiwo and, um, you know, Liam Bryant. Oh, I'm talking about the one who's been on my show who did um um reconsidering reparations, elite capture, um, who who is very critical about some parts of wokeness, but I think would also be viewed as extremely woke, you know, in a variety of senses. Um so I think, you know, honestly it's the black Marxists who are doing the best jobs laying out wokeness. Um I think you know, I, I'm not a big fan of D'Angelo. I think Kendi is better, but still not, you know, super compelling. I think Tanahasi Coates Coates um, has been fairly compelling in a variety of ways on these fronts. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that...
1: So Tanahan because- is a really interesting example, right? Because he's written, to my mind, one of the most interesting articles about American suffragism. He wrote about mm-hmm. the split between the abolitionists, Frederick Douglass and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan be Anthony and the way that all of these white feminists who were abolitionists then ended up peeling away from that movement. And he wrote a really brilliant piece, which I think being a black American man, he was in the position to that. I would not be as a white English woman to talk about Hmm. the fact that it, it is always held against the women that they didn't then move on to the project of, um, uh, of c- civil rights as it were but it's never kind of leveled in the other direction that actually why was you know why didn't Frederick Douglass give a shit about uh, about <laughs> about women um and, and, right. I, and I th- it was it was an article that genuinely grappled with the complexity about the fact that you've got two minority groups who both got a big grievance and then you've got black women who belong to both minority groups who've got an even bigger grievance and the way that we talk about it is often very reductive so I would say yeah I think Tanahisi Coates is, is an exceptionally good writer and like I'm not, as I said before, I'm not convinced of the case for reparations. But that piece on reparations and about redlining and the and the long-term effects of that housing discrimination on Black Americans is just incredibly compelling journalism. Mm-hmm. He would be my top, my top pick, I guess. But I'm not sure that he is quote-unquote woke. Although he did put Peterson, didn't he, in his in one of his Marvel series, which really upset him, which is very funny. Oh. Well, yeah.
0: And again, you know, I want to I want there I want there to be a version of like because this was originally a positive term. And I want to maintain that there is a positive version of this that is about, you know, growing awareness towards systemic injustice. And I do think that Coates is good on those fronts. Um, You know, this may be a similar situation to what it's like with American conservatives and progressives in the sense that a lot of American progressives didn't leave or, you know, whatever, get kicked out of however you want to argue about it, the institutions, and so are writing mostly academic material, whereas a lot of conservatives move to think tanks, and so are writing more um, public-facing, policy-based kinds of material. It's just interesting to me that, like, even you in your own article in your paragraph where you're like but there is a problem on the flip side of this the flip side you go to is QAnon, not the anti-woke and those are very different things i think i would not view those as the same spheres um and i think there's i don't know if it's that like people are hesitant to identify that the anti-woke is itself a community or something like that but it's just an interesting asymmetry in my mind between how people talk about these issues
1: I think, if anything, you're surprising me by your being quite nice to the anti-woke community because a lot of them have turned out <laughs> to be quite Q-curious. Oh, some you of know. them are
0: very conspiratorial. No no question about it. But QAnon, yeah, is, is, I think, a different, though sometimes overlapping, community. Yeah,
1: But, like, when you think about groomer discourse, I mean, it's been fascinating mm-hmm. to me watch. No one has... Degenerated faster than Elon Musk in terms of, I mean, I, the signs were always there, right? Like, he called the Thai cave rescuer a pedo. Sure. Um, right. So he was always like ready with that as a kind of insult. But you he's know, definitely on he's the good, James oh,
0: Lindsay accelerated track for sure.
1: It's extraordinary, though, isn't it? Like, it, it is one of those things where you're just like, why are you tweeting all of the time? You know, you could be putting rockets into space. um And, and any, it has anything been Anything really want, any to project
0: of worth you want. <laughs>
1: Yeah, right. I know you could build yourself a mansion made of gold and fill it full of, you know, chimps like Michael Jackson. Like you could have a theme park, a theme park of your own. Um, and And I just find that it's really interesting that his, like I just sometimes think that people have, my, my theory of politics is often very much about personality, it's very psychological, and I just wonder if people just pour themselves into the bottle that's available to them, and to stay with the IDW, like to me a really interesting mm-hmm. example of that would be Majid Nawaz who was one of the int- like original members of the IDW, and he started off as a Islamist extremist he was in his book to hear, and he very publicly renounced that and was part of de-radicalization programs and now he's sort of re-radicalized into a kind of COVID denier great reset kind of guy right and what that looks to me like is somebody who and you know to make the same criticism James Lindsay starts out as a new atheist and that's sure. the big thing that he gets a load of attention of and he ends up being funded by Christian nationalists and I just mm-hmm. wonder you know we, we cover in the series a guy is a pickup artist and he originally wanted to be a Greek Orthodox monk and you're like two rather different attitudes to sex that you kind of have there but (laughs) but similar skill set though apparently right but like but no but it is genuinely it's like the need is to be listened to this is why i think the guru thing is really interesting the need is to be validated to be heard to be seen as smarter than other people to be at the vanguard of whatever the exciting social movement is to be a prophet and actually the form that that takes you know in in the 1500s these people would have been something else right they would have been whatever the 1500s version of this was
0: Right. And it's there, there's a couple of studies out there right now about the correlates with conspiratorial thinking, and I don't want to come down hard one way or the other. I think there are many, many paths up the conspiracy conspiracism mountain. Um, I think two of the main paths are probably related to narcissism and a lack of sense of control. Um, so, And I think those two things often go together because narcissists often feel very out of control. Um, but we should, before we run out of time, talk a little bit about trans issues. Um, and hopefully we can continue to keep this productive and positive um so I want to talk about this piece for which you received a lot of criticism though i'm sure also a lot of support um uh, uh, this is a twenty seven piece twenty seventeen piece excuse me uh entitled a man can 't just say he 's turned into a woman um and in this piece, you criticize. I would say the proposed shift to self ID for gender in the law in the UK, which never, I think ended up happening, but you were criticizing at the time. um, And you were sort of comparing it sort of disfavorably to the current model, which is, was a, was a two year living as your gender sign off by two doctors um, kind of approach. Um Now, You frame in the article, you frame this as a concern that the change to ID wouldn't actually address the harms that trans people experience, which I think is probably true for some of the problems and not true necessarily for other ones. I think there are some problems that it would address. Um, But I I first want to just ask you broadly, you know, looking back at this piece, it's been five years are there things you would do differently about the arguments you make or the claims you make, or or do you feel like your position has changed at all on this piece?
1: I think I would probably ask to see the headline before it went to press. Um, (laughs) Because I think a lot of the, the trouble is always that when things are boiled down to a headline, they seem incredibly reductive. But the fundamental point that I was making, I think is true, which is that I have always argued for some version of a citizenship model Um, to, to do with gender right in the same way that you can be born in portland or Dhaka or wherever it might be and you can move to britain you can feel british and then you go through a formal process and at the end of that you are just as british as me who was born here whose parents were born here it is uh you know it doesn't require anyone taking anyone's word for anything any sense of inner essence of britishness it is a formal legal process and then at the end of it you have a set of rights but you also have a set of responsibilities you you have to pay tax here you have to obey the law here you know whatever it might be um and that to me is something that i just thought would build it was the basis of the gender recognition act in 2004 in britain was that this would build a broad consensus that people were making a serious lifelong change that they were you know they were really committed to and that you know it was not being done lightly and that everybody would then accept that you know that these people had really made a commitment to living in their acquired gender and would accept them and i think that was kind of broadly true um I think Sean Faye's book The Transgender Issue is very good on this uh, if you want to read up about the kind of cruelty particularly tabloid cruelty towards trans people as a kind of punchline in the 90s and, and 2000s um and you know there were, there were very kind of cruel ways that people, that people were talked about and then it swung through really I think the self-id push I mean this sounds kind of Maybe you can tell me I'm being conspiratorial, but I do think I'd have some credibility for the argument that Stonewall, which was the big LGB gay rights lobbying organization, ran out of legislative ground in terms of gay rights. You know, you had gay marriage, gay adoption, ability for gay people to serve in the military and kind of at that point had to kind of go, well, that's done. well done, lads, job's done, Like, let's knock off and have a cup of tea and instead pivoted to now being a you know a hugely trans-based organisation. It, it did a formal process where it decided to become an LGBT charity in 2015 and then suddenly found itself with a whole new set of legislative proposals. So at the moment in the UK, you can change your passport without going through this gender recognition certificate process. So you can change your legal documents without the level of, of, an, mm-hmm. of, of state sign-off. And I can totally see why people do find that process too bureaucratic. Actually, the Conservative government has reduced um it took the the fee down the fee was already means tested but it took the fee right down but they they feel essentially the people i've talked to object to it about you have to send off your kind of documents and medical statements to a panel you never get to meet and that they shouldn't be in charge of your your gender and i think i i do buy that argument but i do think that the safeguarding is important you know if you want to get married that goes on a legal register to check that you're not a bigamist you know if you want to change your citizenship that goes, you know, that is a formal process you go through. I don't think this should be different. I think there should be a formal process. We should just agree altogether what the formal process is.
0: Okay. So I think there's some things there that I'm sympathetic to. And then I think I still have some concerns. So I think I agree with you about the title. Um, It seems like we both would agree that that's not, not an ideal title for the article if you're trying to reach multiple individuals though I do think there's some issues that like I don't think that title is totally out of keeping with what's in the content of the article no I don't
1: believe that a speech act really actually I I, okay here's what I believe I think a speech act is reflects your internal sense of yourself I'm not sure that it needs to be it is it rises to the level that everyone should instantly accept it. And you mentioned the non-binary shooter. And that's a really interesting example where, in fact, a load of people have gone, I know you're saying that you're non-binary, but I don't believe you. And that right. was until five minutes ago considered to be a completely taboo thing to ever question someone's self-perception. So it turns out that basically everyone agrees that sometimes you don't have to validate someone's claims about themselves. We just don't true. On where that is.
0: I also think that was always true in the sense that trans activists, as far as I remember, were always willing to acknowledge there are at least, you know, a non-zero number of individuals who will claim to be X in order to gain access to a space to do inappropriate things. I think their argument was usually it's a vanishingly small number of people. And and this is going to be a practical concern I want to talk with you about, like, the changes to the laws wouldn't help women either at all. But let me, before we get to that, I do want to just say I also... You know, I don't think it's necessarily conspiratorial to say that Stonewall switched focuses. Um, well, I, mean, think they,
1: they, they, I mean, the question right, is why. Right right.
0: They, right, right. The question is why. And as long as, you know, I think if you're saying, I know that they did it, you know, they don't actually care about trans people. They're just doing it because they want to stay relevant. That would be a conspiratorial claim without any evidence. If you Like, if you have evidence, okay. But if you don't, then I would say, yeah, that's conspiratorial. If you're just saying, well, look... You know, they wanted to continue to do civil rights work and they thought that this was the next frontier of civil rights work. And so they genuinely transitioned to focusing on that. That's not conspiratorial. That's just how how movements work, I think. Um, I also agree with you that. You know, it is probably the case that for the vast, vast majority of people, this is just a debate about what level of gatekeeping we want, right? There's got to be some level of gatekeeping, but not zero. And then you've got groups like the Matt Walsh's of the world who just want to ban all of it. And then you have folks who, you know, for the reasons you were just describing about the challenges with gatekeeping, take a pretty extreme view of, like, people should literally be able to, you know, go up to a doctor and immediately ask for hormones and get hormones. Um, now, you know, Transact uh, folks will always highlight, I think, that it's the opposite is true in reality, that for the vast majority of individuals, getting access is very difficult, contrary to what Matt Walsh will tell people. Um, but... You know, I am also sympathetic to the idea, especially if we're talking, you know, um, uh, puberty blockers for prepubescent individuals, a very controversial topic, which I'm in favor of. But I think there should be a substantial process to go to get to that point that that, you know, that's not a like one day a child says this. But I think most people are also and that's mostly the way that these things work. So I think it's important to highlight that, like the concerns are not necessarily the current reality, even if they are potentially legitimate concerns on the list of concerns, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. I I think the Reuters article that recently came out showed that quite a lot of times there are people who are getting inappropriately swift diagnoses and treatment. And I think, you know, when you talk to some of the clinicians in those settings they are really struggling with expectations it's something that the tavistock clinic in in england really struggle with particularly when people have been on a waiting list for a long time they thought that once they came through the door well this is it thank god and the thing that when i went in to talk to them they said you have to understand is that these people are desperate you know and 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 that's Mm -hmm. the thing i think it's always really interesting and i think it's useful as a as a journalist that very there are some evil people in the world right but often there are people who are doing things precisely because they think they're helping even if they're not Mm -hmm. and i think in the cases where I think that the Tavistock erred, I think it was about the fact that they really thought that they, had the, they could fix pe- very, very sad children and that they could help them. And whether or not that help was actually the right one is, is, is a question. But I would, not, I would never doubt their motives, that everything that mm-hmm. they did was, was from a genuine feeling that, that they had this ability to kind of really make people's lives a lot better.
0: Yeah, And I think that's an important, you know, preventative from sliding too far into the conspiratorial moral panic world. Some of them will sort of pay lip service to that idea, but I don't want to dive too deep into the, like, what level of gatekeeping there, there are a couple, there are two things in the, in the article that I really do want to push on a bit. One is a philosophical and one's practical. So the philosophical concern, you have this quote, this is often cited, which is why I highlighted at the beginning that like. Your article was uh, um, at least broadly framed as, you know, you're in support, but you don't think this is actually going to help. You say, you know, what the government proposes is a radical rewriting of our understanding of identity. Now it's a question of an internal essence, a soul, if you will. Being a woman or a man is now entirely in your head. I've I've heard you reference the soul thing as well when you were talking to Jordan Peterson in that really pleasant interview. Um, I, I think this seems flawed to me philosophically because I think gender identity is fundamentally subjective, but so is sexuality and pretty much every other part of our identity like they 're all in our heads. where else could they be in essentially um and so I- i'm not sure that this you know that, that I feel like when you accuse your opponents of believing in an essence or a soul, you 're placing a kind of metaphysical burden on them that. They don't actually have to to buy into. So do you do you really feel like if I if I'm gonna say, look, ultimately what determines your gender identity is what you think your gender identity is? Is that really committing me to a soul?
1: But that's really committing you to a ludicrous piece of circular reasoning. I'm a man because I feel like a man. Well, what's a man then?
0: Well, no, I don't think it's circular. I mean, well, I guess I would say it's circular in the sense that some definitions are necessarily circular, like oh,
1: okay. What what's your male gender identity? What does it consist of?
0: yeah so I would say first of all that i don 't have a very strong experience of personal gender identity, and i don 't think that so. everyone does. I think actually a lot of people to very a lot of people who are even critical of trans stuff are coming from a legitimate place of they don 't experience a strong gender identity so they can 't understand what everyone else is talking about and they think they 're faking it um, but i you know my understanding of people 's experiences of gender identity is that it is a sort of complicated mix of internal feelings and experiences in conjunction with how society treats them so it's not necessarily just the fully internalizing of gender norms the way that some anti-trans folks will suggest nor is it completely 100 percent separate from one's environment that would be psychologically impossible um, but i do genuinely believe that like The trans individuals I know who say they experience a strong gender identity and feel that when they have transitioned that they experience less challenges or psychological difficulties because they feel like their gender identity is, you know, more in line with their physical um, or how they're perceived by society, et cetera, et cetera, um, or respected, however you want to put that. Um, And so... It seems very plausible to me that they are experiencing something very real there, much like I think, you know, I don't think there's an essential definition for woman. um, But I think there is a meaningful set of useful definitions that impact people's lives in a variety of ways, but that they all fundamentally are going to be empty of anything. Like, there's no way that we can assess you from the outside and decide for sure that you're a woman. We can decide that you're a biological female, maybe. But not necessarily a woman, nor can we decide that you're gay or straight from the outside, no matter what your behavior is. So I'm not sure that it's a fundamentally different thing. I think we
1: could pop on the old penile plasmagraph, couldn't we, on that one, and measure your sexual arousal responses?
0: Well, but that's, I I, I think, you know, I know you're being a little bit tongue in cheek there, but like you and I probably both know that in the modern world, sexuality is way more complex than do I get an erection when I'm looking at a naked guy versus a naked girl, right? Like, sexuality, there are people who will go their entire lives never engaging in a homosexual act who are gay, right? And there are people who will, you know, go their entire lives engaging in a bunch of different acts, some of which do not reflect their actual, you know, sexuality. So I think that we can make some inferences, but we can't know for sure because it is fundamentally subjective, right? Your sexuality is fundamentally just what you're attracted to, which is just all the way on the inside, it seems like.
1: But that's where I—that's my where my liberalism comes to the fore, which mm-hmm. is that I don't really care or mind. It's really got nothing to do with me who you sleep with as long as they're a consenting adult. So it doesn't, you know, it's like for some conservatives, the idea of gay marriage kind of, ru- like they thought it was ruining right. their straight marriage. And I right. just have never bought that. Like I just always thought love is love. And, you know, then you should have a set of legal rights about this person that you want to be with in a committed relationship. That's fine. I think the gender is different because um, it is about, negotiating between two different minority groups and trying to balance the rights between them. And the thing that I find really troublesome that I think people are quite reluctant to talk about is when I agree with you, like I can see a model of transness that is essentially like a body dysmorphia model, you know, and I came up, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my youth in body modification communities where people committed to quite radical changes to their bodies, whether that was kind of implants, having their tongues forked or whatever, to the extent of having legs removed, all of which helped them feel like they were now looked like what they were supposed to look like. So that was always the model of, of transness that I came up through was that like people just felt, you know, as as a material bodily thing. Like I now feel like I'm in the in the you know, the skin suit that I feel like I should have been in all along, and that's what makes me feel really mm. comfortable. And I was always kind of Fine with that. The bit where I think I started to veer off the rails was the bit when it became a kind of metaphysical claim about having a, you know, being something on the inside, because I'm just not sure I'm a dualist to that level. I don't think you can really separate yourself out from your hormonal environment or how people treat you, you know, all of those things.
0: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a dualist in the sense that I think we have a radically internal mind that is separate from our bodies or something like that. I just think fundamentally the only thing that we're assessing at the end of the day is subjective phenomenal experience. But you so, are,
1: right? You are if you think you can be a biological male who is mm-hmm. a woman then you right. are, because you're not just being a biological male who, likes stresses, wants to she, her pronouns. You know, like, you're not expanding the right. range of what it means to be a man all the way out to traditionally feminine things. You're saying that, actually, there's a point you cross over and you become a woman inside.
0: Yeah, I'm saying that I think if you genuinely self-identify as a woman, in the you know, in the sense of gender, right, not in the sense of sex and biology, then I think there's no other factor that we can really demand, no other criteria that we could demand that you meet that would really actually make you a woman on top of your experience of yourself as a woman.
1: Hmm. Again, I think I just, that to me seems slightly circular in that. And I think that's fine. Right. In the same way that, what does it mean to be British? Well, it means to have a British passport. It means to be live in Britain. Like, you know what I mean? You're essentially always ending up invoking the concept in order to reify it. So I don't necessarily have a problem with that. What I do think I find really quite worrying is when it does lean very hard into sexual stereotypes particularly for that subset of adult male transitioners and you know yeah i you know it's when we talk about kind of liking problematic writers andrea long chu i think is a phenomenal writer i think her criticism is really brilliant she's a she's a phenomenal magazine writer i really struggle in females where she writes the bare essence of femaleness is what is it an open mouth blank blank eyes and an expectant asshole right her Mm idea of what it is to be a woman is is it being a hole to be fucked And that is what feminism spent, you know, decades, hundreds of years saying that we weren't. Yeah, I'm not sure what the context is on that one. (laughs) Sorry. Right, but the whole book is about fem, like femaleness as eroticized submission, as femininity essentially blurring. And this
0: isn't this isn't like a criticism of the way that they're portrayed.
1: No, no, no. More she, like there's a, a, a there's a there's a whole essay called like sissy porn made me trans. It's 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 it. I, I uh, love yeah, it. I'm, oh, I'm
0: familiar with sissy porn made me trans. Yes, because um, she's
1: being very very honest about her experience and like what what you know and the fact that she wanted to be I, was it objectified in Daisy Duke shorts, right? I think. Right. I, I'm I'm all for writers being incredibly honest in their experience. I just think. What does this have to do with me and my experience of womanhood? Which is like saying, please don't, please treat me as a real human, not somebody to be objectified.
0: No, I totally look, I, you know, and this has been a complaint towards drag as well, where drag women are accused of reifying essential gender norms in their performances. Um, And I think, you know, there is a version of some of those things that is legitimate, especially given the conflicts between feminists and gay men. Historically, um, I think there, there's something, there's a conversation to be had there. I also think there's a bit of a cross talk or a bit of a, a, a mixed signals here. Cause going back to our discussion of like the gatekeeping, you're in favor of someone having to, Live as their preferred, or how, you know, whatever term we want to use here, live as their gender identity for two years before they can be classified as a woman, right? I don't what know is if I living... necessarily
1: say to two, oh, two years? But okay. I think yeah, I would yeah, say... the time
0: frame is not important to me. What's important I would say to me is the, like,
1: commitment you know, to, um, to a commitment to to a level of kind of binary tra- tra- And I think you're right. It, it that will inevitably have to come towards sex, like, saying you're going to use you know a female name. You have to pass. You have to pass
0: so. fem, right? Like that's what what we're basically saying there is you have to mostly pass fem enough that we'll let you be viewed as a woman.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's the the kind of transmedicalism debate is a really interesting and difficult one. And I do understand the people who say, you know, maybe not everybody's in a able to have surgery because of their medical particularly in America where it's going to cost sure. you a lot of money and you're not going to be able to do it um, from insurance. But if you look at the polling, people do level do expect a level of kind of serious commitment. And I just think for me, I think, particularly when we're talking about access to single-sex spaces, I think things do change when you have made a physical transition. And I mean that in the sense of hormones, testosterone blockers, and and and, and some level of surgery. Like, I mm. would treat, in personally, in the prison system, for example, I would treat somebody who is on testosterone suppressions and has had bottom surgery differently to somebody who hasn't, because their risk profile has has changed.
0: I think there is something to that, and I think... If, you know, if we were in a situation where trans individuals weren't being banned from getting treatment in Florida and situations like that, I believe that you would get more buy-in on hard cases like prisons and sports, which I think people currently think are being used, I think, correctly as wedge issues to try to push an anti-trans agenda, even though other individuals are just genuinely concerned about it. And I think there could be a case to be made that, like if you want to be in a women's prison, you have to be on hormone replacement or something. You know, I'm not sure you could go so far as to require bottom surgery in America for the reasons that you already said, but I think hormone replacement might be a plausible, similar to the, you know, people who will say, look, I want women to, trans women to be in women's sports, but I'm fine with them being required to meet certain, you know, hormone criteria in order to do so. And I think that's the way that it's currently done.
1: Oh it's all done uh, in completely different ways and like it used to be right, done it's all, the, all over the levels map. in Olympics, but now all the individual sports have had their, their different ways. yeah, no, I don't think you can um you you certainly there's no way in which the the state should be coercing people into medical procedures. I also think there's more to be done, and actually Britain has had tried doing this um having trans specific wings, so specific units for trans women, and that might be something that ends up being a very useful way because one of the problems is that of the British trans populations only have about 120 people trans women in British prisons um of whom 40 percent are sex offenders and those are people who it's not appropriate to put in the general female population um but equally well it's probably yeah. not appropriate to put them in the general male population um so what you have to look mm-hmm. at that point is a much more individualized system and that's actually kind of where Britain has ended up with a case conference in the sense that you treat a trans man shoplifter very differently than you treat a very recently declared trans woman rapist and that's that just seems to me like something that is going to that's i i think the final destination of all of this will be a very much an individual risk profile based on people's individual circumstances
0: and i think that's true and i think in the trend we have to accept that in the transitional cultural period there's going to be Sort of imperfect compromises we' we don't want them to slide into the like separate but equal in the horrifying American sense of that, um, which I think would be a concern that some folks might have there, and I also think that like it's worth noting if you're like me and you're more sympathetic to individuals being allowed to transition earlier in life, that could reduce some of these problems because you would you know have individuals who weren't you know partially transitioning post male puberty, which is I think a lot of the the like Demographic that uh, especially radical feminists are particularly concerned with, and and so like I want to bring in one more quote from your article, which I think it's fair to be critical of. Um, you say, you know, right after that part where you talk about, um, you know, the soul stuff, um, which again I, I I still think that we can we don't need no one needs to be believing in a soul here, but you say, you know, in this climate, if this were to pass, who would challenge someone with a beard exposing their penis in a woman's changing room? And, you know, setting aside the question of whether people in general believe that there has to be bottom surgery for someone to be, you know, transgender, um, it's not at all clear to me from a practical level how preventing self-ID actually prevents women in the scenario that you're describing. It seems to me that, you know, I admit, let me understand, right? What is? How do you imagine, you know, like, let's say that situation occurs, why does it make a difference to not have self ID laws in a way that would, you know, why would that help us protect the women in that situation?
1: Well, the Wee Spa incident is a really interesting way of looking at it, right? This is the LA Spa in which a woman said there is somebody getting their penis out in the in the spa in the naked spa and in front of my children, and the left wing response to this was how appalling this is transphobia, you know, whatever, blah blah blah. And actually, the left wing response was that this is made up, this isn't, this did never, really, none of this really happened, and then it got jumped on by like Proud Boys and um, various other kind of right wing groups who ended up protesting about it in a very, you know. Um, aggressive way which then caused an an even more of a left polarization back against it Um, and then what happened is that annie go of all people was the one who finally found the records and found out that yes this person who exposed their penis in the women's spa was a registered sex offender so this was an incident that you know perfectly legitimate for this woman to complain that her child was being exposed to someone flashing And that's the bit that gets me is that women are given all these messages from birth about you have to protect yourself. You have to don't walk home alone. Don't have a don't accept a drink from a stranger. Be on your guard against men. Men are men are evil and violent and they're coming for you. And if you don't take advantage of all of these messages and you don't protect yourself, then it's your fault. You've let this happen. Except, sorry unless it turns out that they were actually trans women, which you obviously can't tell from the outside because how are you supposed to know because there's no requirement for any physical changes, in which case if you mention these things, you're a bigger. How on earth are you supposed to match those two sets of messages to women up? I just don't understand how you can.
0: I can understand your confusion there. I'm not sure that answers the question, though, in terms of how does maintaining a self-ID law change how we would deal with a situation like that because it seems to me in both situations whether you have well, this you can't prosecute law. that
1: guy for flashing you can't prosecute the weasel well, guy well, so, for flashing because let me, let me he is legitimately a woman if he says he is right and i'm not sure whether or not his, what pronouns that person uses i'm not being deliberately offensive but that that person is at the moment of their declaration a woman and it's perfectly legitimate for them to get their penis out in the women's changing room
0: so i i, so I, I think i uh, understand a little bit what you're saying there um in this climate, so you say, you know, in this climate, would someone challenge someone with a beard exposing their penis? Now, so you're also though not saying that you require women, trans women, to shave, and you're also, I think, unsure that you would require trans women to get bottom surgery. So it seems like the self ID law is not actually the factor there. I'm not quite sure. I'm not so like if we, if we have a self ID law, right? And then someone does the norm
1: there, isn't it? Right. It's about establishing the norm. And actually most trans women I know would be mortified to use the open changing rooms. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. Right. That's another thing to highlight for sure. So like what I think there should probably be is much more single cubicle provision, both in toilets, changing rooms, whatever it might be. Right. And, but the thing is that no one wants to do that because it's expensive. You have to change building codes and people are against it. And actually, you know, that would be really helpful for non-binary people too, right. Who don't want to use the men or women's changing rooms. They want, like single provision that is not, you know, um, and, and we have, you know, and, and we don't really want them using disabled facilities, which are often the only single cubicle ones because that then slices a whole load of other people who are having to budge up and share the facilities. So the whole right. thing kind of doesn't really work too well on it is it own, but what I'm saying is, and this has always been the case is, I don't think the problem is trans people. I think the problem is male sexual predators and male sexual predators have, have been through self ideal or given an incredible weapon with which to say, you can't complain about this when they know exactly what they're doing. They know that they're flashing. I think that person in the WeeSpa knew exactly what they were doing. And you, what you've now done is created a way that you can never challenge that. There is no way of saying who is genuinely committed to transition and who is who is a chancer. That's my so
0: let, me, l- my l- let me ask you then, in your ideal situation, if we had an individual who was a registered sex offender, um, and there's lots of complaints to be raised about the sex offender registries and how they work, but that's yeah. you know, it's a whole separate yeah, debate, yeah. right? But, like, let's say that, you know, they did something and they regretted it and they served their time, and then they transitioned and they did the, like, two-year, you know, or six months, whatever we want to call it, of of, you know, what you're requiring. They get their gender ID card at the end of it that says that they're actually a woman, but they don't go through bottom surgery. Are you okay with that person, you know changing in the women's room, or would you still consider that inappropriate that they would be, you know, naked in the women's room in that situation?
1: I think in that situation, I would prefer that there were unisex facilities and then sex specific facilities. And I just, I don't know how to explain this to men, but it is very (laughs) different when you are in a group of women and you don't have to deal with male socialization. Um, oh, know, I, I, I fully I,
0: believe that. I mean I believe that of all identity groups.
1: And like I I know personally that I would not be happy getting undressed in a communal changing room if there were if there were people I perceive to be male around. And I think I that's guess, something yeah. that's that's really different and i, I do I, and this is what i mean i also think that most trans women don't want to inflict their penises on other people so we have to be more expansive in how we think about this and what these and maybe some people right. are very hip and scandinavian and they're completely fine with unisex changing rooms great and there should be provision for them but there should also be provision for older people who aren't so you know all, all people who are victims previous survivors of sexual assault right who have a trauma response to the idea of being uh, being right. a, presence of a naked man like that's that's all stuff we have to be mindful of the fact that everybody in this situation brings their own stuff to it. You know, trans women are in a press group, as are mm-hmm. rape survivors who are non-trans women.
0: For sure. I, my, my, only, my only point here was it doesn't seem to me that the ID law is doing anything to actually help the situation. If it's true that, you know, if it were the case that I went through the ID process that you're suggesting and you're still not comfortable with me changing or someone changing in that space it isn't a preventative in that kind of way. It's just another hoop that when they jump through it, they're still not going to be able to do the thing because like, look, it would be ideal if everyone had individual bathroom spaces and changing spaces and all these sorts of things. But sometimes there just isn't enough physical space, especially in cities for that kind of accommodation. So there are going to inevitably be situations where trans individuals have to make a choice between binarily set out rooms in this kind of way. And if there's, okay, it, Well, it let seems me to ask me that, you a you know, question
1: then, which is mm-hmm. why can't, what is the reason by which trans women don't want to change in the men's changing room? Is that around safety, or is that around affirmation of identity to you?
0: I would understand it as both.
1: Right. So you understand that male violence is is a is a threat to trans women, but you don't understand that women might also feel like that too.
0: That's not all what I'm saying. I absolutely understand why women are concerned about male violence and that being a threat to them. I'm simply making the point that your article seemed to be making the claim. ID law is essential for protecting women from harm. And the point that I'm making is it doesn't seem that it actually has any ability to prevent harm sure. in this kind of I'm way, right? Like,
1: I wouldn't feel comfortable in that situation. i would probably go ahead with it in, in, a, in a system where I knew that somebody had been through a pretty rigorous process in order to get into that women's changing room, right? Like that would be a huge level of reassurance for me, knowing that. So you would be was, okay with them? No, I wouldn't I would, I would I wouldn't like it and I would probably mm. change myself in, in like a locked cubicle toilet, which is what women have done since the beginning of time when they're really uncomfortable about stuff is that they've taken themselves out of public life. I Because I have been socialized to think don't get naked around strange male people. Like that is a danger to you. And that's just how I've been brought up. And I don't, frankly, it's like not a ridiculous hysterical fear. However, as I'm, what I'm saying is I would accept the fact that the burden was on me to change my behavior if I was living in a system in which there was proper gatekeeping. Right. That's the thing. It would give me a reassurance that actually anybody who was doing that had made, had had the gender dysphoria diagnosis and had been through like a genuine commitment and and process. And then I would think, okay, right. Like you, that has reduced my feelings of risk in that situation, which is what I'm talking about.
0: Okay. So if you do feel like that does genuinely reduce the risk, I I can understand that. Um, It does seem to me that, The way that you lay it out there in terms of, you know, this is an extreme and unfalsifiable claim that will somehow allow male violence to go on without any, you know, correctives or male abuse to go on without any correctives seems sort of a much more extreme claim than the like. Some individuals would feel more comfortable if we had this system that let them know that this person had gone through a process.
1: Well, I think there's two different things going on. One is the incidents themselves. So like the one that often gets mentioned in the context of Britain is the case of Karen White, who um, was a sex offender, put in a women's prison and then was done for exposing her penis in the lunch queue and pressing it into a woman's back. And but but there's more than that. That's the that's the kind of top level incident. What we're talking about is the fact the effect on women prisoners of having somebody they perceive as male around them and the level of fear and edginess for people who have often been victims of sexual violence that that causes and that's very hard to capture in statistics because that's a perception Mm. um and that's what i mean is like i don't think there are easy solutions to this because i can totally understand being a trans woman in that situation and not wanting to change in the men's changing room I can also really understand how women who are survivors of sexual violence, which is a great deal of women feel about not having a female only space in which they feel secure, particularly when it's Mm -hmm. an intimate space. And I, there is those two things, you know, there's no perfect solution for that. Is there right? Apart from the one where it involves you spending a lot more money, which therefore no one is going to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, a great solution
1: would be if men got less rapey, but like no one seems to be, you know, that that one.
0: Yeah. And I, I like, I don't think that anyone should claim that there are no moral debates here. I just, yeah, I think it's valuable to talk about what the actual implications of different approaches are. Um, so maybe we can talk about this and talk about prisons a little bit more for some bonus uh, VIP stuff, because we're we're way over time um, here. I do appreciate you sort of, Uh, uh, laying out the nuances of that position a little more Um, I can certainly understand why people um, reacted uh, negatively um, to the language there but I also believe you when when you say that like you are highlighting specific cases and um, genuinely feel like this would help uh, to some extent with those issues
1: yeah and there have been very difficult cases for example um, the case of Paris Green who was moved to a women's prison and then was having sex with a lot of inmates and that's you know that's a situation that's kind of alarming too right like you don't necessarily want to uh, how how much do we think that prison relationships can ever really be consensual you know when you start introducing people with penises into women's prisons it does raise a whole spectrum like you know should you be handing out condoms to people that you didn't have to do before like there are a suite of issues that you then have to work through
0: yeah, so let's talk about prison some more in VIP, because I think that's a specific kind of hard case that's worth diving into yeah. a bit. Um, but before we get to that, I, of course, have to torture you. Um, so this is the enlightening round. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh. This is round two, Trolley Boogaloo edition. So. You're familiar with the trolley problem, I imagine, living on yeah. the internet like we do. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list of scenarios. And you're going to tell me, should you pull the lever? So not would you, psychologically, but should you morally pull the lever in these situations? Assuming innocent strangers, unless I say otherwise, etc. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, you look ready. Uh, so first, the standard situation. Should you... Pull the lever and save five by killing one. Yes, you should. Okay. Then let me ask, should you save five by causing a machine to shove somebody onto the tracks, derailing the train, rather than simply switching tracks?
1: Yeah, I think we're going to discover that I'm a hardcore, like, greatest um, happiness person on this one. <laughs> that's, that's how I make all my moral judgments
0: could end up a radical consequentialist okay fair enough you'll be cancelled for that later um so let me ask then this is a, harder even if you're a consequentialist should you save yourself by killing one other person
1: <laughs> uh, no you shouldn't
0: ah okay i mean
1: i probably would let's be honest we all probably would but i don't think you
0: should <laughs> sure sure you don't think you should do you think you should save yourself by letting another person die, not actively killing them?
1: No, I don't think you should. Interesting. I have an ethic of radical self-sacrifice, which I think my, I'm cashing, I'm writing checks that I don't think I would actually.
0: Yeah, we're learning some fascinating things here. So should you save your favorite artist's body of work by killing the artist?
1: (laughs) No.
0: Ah, interesting. Should you do it if the artist is there begging you to save them to kill the art or save the art by killing them?
1: No, you got to value people more than things.
0: Even if they would prefer you do otherwise. Interesting. Um, oh, no, so I've got so no and consequentialist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, just hitting all the highlights. Um, okay. Should you save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human? no mm.
1: oh come on someone's going to invent another sentient artificial intelligence
0: <laughs> yeah sure look the at chat,
1: chat gpt3 come on it'll come around again yeah. sorry chat uh, sorry ai but you know there we go
0: what if it turns out well i guess you're just still saying no right what if it turns out that you're the sentient ai Can you kill the human <laughs> to save yourself
1: no that's great though i maybe that okay. would be the solution to all my problems if i discover i'm a chatbot yeah
0: we can always dream right um so final round of these Would you, or should you, save a random non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. No? Okay. What about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human?
1: But including any humans.
0: Uh, No humans, just you know, animals, plants.
1: The the, the joyful leopard and the lovely hummingbird. Yeah, yeah,
0: the the pure, undisturbed, pristine wilderness.
1: Do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna save the ecosystem on the basis that I think probably a lot more humans' lives depend on the ecosystem. I say so you're gonna you're
0: gonna pretend you're not an eco terrorist while acknowledging that you are. That's fine. All right, you've survived the trolley problem. How are you feeling?
1: I feel bad. I mean, actually, I don't feel bad. I <laughs> I feel good. I feel fine. I've been. I don't I've, feel
0: bad. I'm a sociopath. It's fine. Everything's fine.
1: Yeah. No, but I do. I have. I, it's interesting because it does reveal your priors, which is that I do value human life more than animal life. I value people more than objects, uh, and I'm fine with killing people. So that's good. Okay, and ending well, the apocalypse is what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: Every, all of your friends and loved ones now know that about you and can feel better that you're going to look out for them. I guess, though. So, <laughs> Uh yeah no that's totally great um so Helen um you know uh, folks who stick around we'll chat a little bit uh in the VIP but do you want to let um non patrons know where they can find your work one more time?
1: Sure yeah you can find me on the Atlantic uh publishing. Fairly regularly, um, and also my new series, which is the New Gurus, which is on BBC, but it's also on all podcast platforms. And there's eight episodes. Of that the first four are dropping on the 24th of December, and then the next four are dropping on box. Boxing Day. Is the Intellectual Dark Web Day? Why did the Intellectual Dark Web go off the the rails? It's like the post Christmas pick me up that you need.
0: Yeah, that's you know that's my kind of Christmas pick me up, but I understand that's not <laughs> for everybody. I have a very dark tastes in podcast listening. Uh and are you st- you still on Twitter for the moment while it exists, right?
1: Yeah, I'm actually we've been advised to stay on Twitter so that people don't squat our accounts, but I mm. I would be very much wondering about. I mean, I I took 2 months off earlier this year and I didn't regret it. Um I left Facebook ages ago. I'm a big so I am a, both a social media addict and a social media skeptic at this point, I would say.
0: Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Come hang out and listen to us talk some more. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest monthly Voidlings, Goof and Greg Gillum, and our newest yearly Voidling patron, William Sullivan. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard, Neil Polzin, and Jesse Benowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all of the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with the new co-host, Callie Wright of the Queer Queersplaining Podcast, And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' filmed live musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at etvpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, No matter your subjective identity, you are the void and the void is you.